Amen. I love that song. Boy, that's not fair getting all these emotions going. <laughs> no greater love hath any man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friend, yet I was his enemy, and still he gave himself for me. I love that song. Thank you. That was a blessing. Well, take your Bibles and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 10. 1 Samuel chapter 10. In Senegal, if you don't shake somebody's hand, if you don't want to shake somebody's hand, a lot of times men won't shake women's hands, and so there's two ways that you can do that. Uh, either you place your hand over your heart, showing respect, and kind of give a little bow, or you can clasp your own hand and kind of do a handshake as they shake their own hand, and you've kind of done this osmosis-type shaking hand of thing. And so if you're not into the whole elbow-pumping thing, the kind of awkward elbow thing, then uh, let's, we can go around just uh, cheering on everybody, shaking each other's hands. Now, you, I don't, you might like this part of service. Um, I, I've never been a big fan of it, but... If anything good, this is my opinion, so don't throw stones at me, just my opinion. But if anything good is coming out of COVID, it's uh, not having to do the mid-service handshaking. All right, I, you might like that, but it's just awkward to me. I've never, never been a fan. I'm not against it. You know, I just, if, if, if you know, anyways, I'm going to keep moving on with that. We're going to jump right into this, and I'm excited about uh, seeing what the Lord will do this morning as we study a little bit in the life of Saul. We have a lot of ground to cover, and so we're going to dive right in. And uh, grateful to see so many of you out. If you're at home and uh, watching live stream, go fill up your coffee and uh, relax in your lazy boy. And we're going to get into this thing, all right? And now all y'all are wishing you stayed home too, right? <laughs> okay. First Samuel chapter 10. And we are introduced to Saul in chapter 9. But we're going to dive into when he is presented as their option for a king. In First Samuel chapter 10, verse 23 we get into the middle of Samuel being introduced to Israel. And the story of Saul, Saul, Samuel introducing Saul. Saul, the story of Saul is really a tragedy of a life that is blessed by genuine, humble faith. But when he's put into a position of power, almost immediately begins to spiral downward into a life of self-consumed pride, and arrogancy. Now, we're not going to look so much on the negative aspects of Saul's life. We're going to look more into the positive aspects of his humble beginnings. In 1 Samuel chapter 10, the Bible says in verse 23, they ran and fetched him thence. If you're familiar with the story, most of us are. They went to choose Saul as king, and as it comes down to him as the individual, He's hiding among all the cattle and all the luggage. He was humble. They bring him out and present him. And he stood among the people. He was higher than any of the people from his shoulders and upward. And Samuel said to all the people, See ye him whom the Lord hath chosen, that there is none like him among all the people. Whenever I read this story, I, Saul, I, I, I've never liked it, especially when I hit about 15, 16 years old. I shot up over six foot. I'm the only one in my family that's over six foot, six four, generally a little bit taller than most people that I'm around. And when you read Saul and compare him to David, because that's usually the comparing and contrasting, Saul was head and shoulders above the rest, tall guy who ends up failing in his life. And here's David who was small and ruddy and God blessed him, used him. I never really liked that physical description of that thrown in there. But anyways, that being said, Samuel said to all the people, See ye whom the Lord hath chosen, and there is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted and said, God save the king. Then Samuel told the people the manner of the kingdom, and wrote it in a book, and laid it up before the Lord. And Samuel sent all the people away, every man to his house. And Saul also went home to Gibeah, and there went with him a band of men whose hearts God had touched. But the children of Belial said, How shall this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no presents, but he, Saul, held his peace. Then Nahash the Ammonite came up and encamped against Jabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said unto Nahash, Make a covenant with us and we will serve thee. And so we'll look a little bit in a minute about this conflict. Here comes the enemy, encamps against these Israelites, and they say, hey, we don't want to die. Let's, let's try to work something out here. Let's work a covenant, which was never written in God's word that they were to make covenants with the people of the land. You'd think they would have learned 
from the history of their own people and from the commandments of the Word of God in the Torah. So they try to make this covenant. We'll find out what happens in a little bit. The story continues, and the Bible says in verse 5, Behold, Saul came after the herd out of the field, and Saul said, What aileth the people that they weep? This was a response of the people in general once they heard about what was going on in Jabesh Gilead. And they told the tidings of the men of Jabesh. The Spirit of God came upon Saul when he heard all these tidings, and his anger was greatly kindled. And he took a yoke of oxen and hewed them in pieces and sent them throughout all the coast of Israel by the hands of the messengers, saying, Whosoever cometh not forth after Saul and after Samuel, so shall it be done unto his oxen. And the fear of the Lord fell on all the people, and they came out with one consent. But when he numbered them in Bezek, the children of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah, 30,000. And they said unto the messengers that came, Thus shall ye say unto the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow, by that time the sun be hot, ye shall have help. And the messengers came and showed it to the men of Jabesh, and they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will come out unto you, and ye shall do with us all that seemeth good unto you. And it was so on the morrow that Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the host in the morning watch, and slew the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And it came to pass that they which remained were scattered, so that two of them were not left together. And the people said unto Samuel, Who is he that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. And Saul said, There shall not a man be put to death this day. For today the Lord hath wrought salvation in Israel. Then said Samuel to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. And all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. And there they sacrificed sacrifices of peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. I want to speak today on the essentials, and we're going to pull it out of this text, but I want to speak on the essentials to biblical maturity, church unity, and mission renewal. This is Missions Month, Missions Conference coming up. And we understand we have a mission, a purpose, a, a calling and a cause to which God has called out His church and given us this purpose. Sometimes we need a renewal to that understanding of what our calling and what our cause is. So we're going to look today at essentials to biblical maturity, church unity, mission, renewal. When you're first introduced to Saul, he's out looking for some of the flock of his dad, just a humble man from Benjamin, overseeing as a shepherd his father's flock and cattle. And as he's finding these cattle that have been separated from the herd, he comes into contact with Samuel, who God tells earlier, if you read chapter 9, that I'm going to set up a king. The people of Israel had already told Samuel, we want a king to reign over us like all the other nations. And Samuel, of course, was grieved by this. This was never God's original intention for Israel. But God says, go ahead, warn them about what's going to come because of this but I'm going to go ahead and do what they ask, and we're going to set up a king. And Samuel is led by God to choose Saul. Saul comes into contact in chapter 9, and we see his very humble beginnings. Humility is so essential to Christian living, to being used of God. When he's confronted by Samuel, and Samuel anoints him and tells him, you are going to be the king of Israel what is his response? In chapter 9, he says, Who am I? I'm the least. I'm from the smallest tribe of all Israel. The least among my father's house. Why would you choose me? Paul tells us that it's by the grace of God that I am what I am. Paul never lost that sense of humility so essential to being used of God. Samuel shows him the word of God. Again, go back and read chapter 9. After he anoints him, he begins to explain to him and expound to him the word of God. In those days, if they would seek the Lord and what God's will was, they would find a prophet. Or in those days, the Bible tells us chapter 10, they were called seers. 
And so they would go to the prophet to inquire of the Lord. And so the prophet is giving the authoritative word of God by which Saul is to be following. The Bible tells us in chapter 9 as well, in verse 6, or chapter 10, in verse 6, Samuel is giving him instructions. He said, go back, your dad is going to be looking for, the cattle have been found, and as you return, you'll be met by a group of prophets, and you'll begin to prophesy, and the Spirit of God will come upon you, and you shall be changed into another man. The transforming work of the Holy Spirit. He's anointed and eventually presented to Israel as the next king. So Saul is chosen king. We see his humble beginnings. He has a humble spirit, a humble attitude toward what God is calling him to do. And the Bible tells us, we just read it in chapter 10, that as he returns home, so this huge ceremony where he's presented as the next king, the first king of Israel, he returns home. Some people, God's heart had touched, and they rally around him. Others reject him. And that's always the case. When God might lead you to do something, you'll have those who oppose what you know in your heart God is leading you to do. And others, God will touch their heart to rally around you. And I'm grateful to the Lord that when God calls us, he puts the right people in our place. Look, if we're going to fulfill mission, it's so essential that we have unity as a body. This is never and is not a one-man show, this work of fulfilling mission. Mission in Senegal is not about us trying to build a kingdom and a name. I, look, there is no stopping. I think it was Ronald Reagan maybe said this, but it is so true. It's founded in biblical wisdom. There is no stopping what God can do when nobody cares who gets the credit. This is God's work. And there's a reason why Jesus calls us His body. Every member has its place. But it is absolutely essential for unity within this body. And it's absolutely essential, as we're going to find out, for Israel to prosper and face the conflict and the battles that they would, that they were unified. And unity necessitates humility. If we are going to have unity and fulfillment of mission, we must be a humble people. Saul began right. He was humble. This humility was on display. Imagine, you're just told you're going to be king. And what does he do? Immediately after, he goes back home. Back to the herd. Back to what he was supposed to be doing already. Fulfilling his duties. Nothing fancy. I mean, imagine this big procession, this big ordeal. You're just presented as this next authori authoritative king in this new dynasty that God is going to be establishing. And immediately, in humility, he goes back home. And just keeps on doing what he knows he's supposed to be doing. You see, rather than taking immediate authority, I think Saul understood that while he was chosen, his calling had not yet been proven. And so there's going to be a time in which God is going to continue to cultivate him. Rather than forcing his way into this position that he knows he's been chosen for, Saul decides he will wait for the Lord to open the door. Very shortly, as we see in chapter 11, that door of opportunity is going to be wide open for Saul to prove his calling. And yet we see him practicing certain principles of humility so that God can raise him up and use him the way he desires. Humility, this is important, it's a biblical principle, humility waits on God's timing to accomplish what God has called us to do rather than advancing our own agenda. Humility learns to wait on the Lord. The Bible says, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and He will lift you up. It is God who raises up and puts down. We need to be a humble people. May God give us humble leaders in this nation. We need so desperately. Humility is waiting on God's timing. It is essential in order to advance God's work. And God's mission, that I lay aside all personal agenda and personal ambition for what God is calling me to do and fulfill. The last place that you want to find yourself in seeking to do God's work is fighting God's will. And unfortunately, as you study the life of Saul, that's where he ends up. As you read the rest of the story, 
Saul ends his life in a miserable pursuit of what was inevitable. God's will for David. Of course, because of obedience, you can read this later in chapter 12 and 13. He goes into the priesthood where he's not supposed to, offers a sacrifice. Samuel tells him, because of your disobedience and stepping into an area of authority that you had no right to step into, I am dividing up the kingdom. And instead of accepting that, he ends his life in a miserable pursuit of God's inevitable will that's going to be accomplished. If we remain in a place, in a position of humility... We lay aside our personal ambition and agenda and God's work will be accomplished by waiting on the Lord. He was empowered to fulfill the first task that's going to be presented to him in chapter 11, which ends up, by the end of chapter 11, raising Saul up, not only to the position of king, but elevating his leadership and authority in the eyes of the people, doing it God's way. And so as he is seeking God, waiting humbly on the timeline of the Lord, God is going to use him in a mighty way. Humbly waiting on the Lord means that we faithfully fulfill our duties to serve him in our present position with our talents, our gifts, our mind, our affection, and our resources. God had chosen Saul. God had given him a calling. God had great Plans for Saul. But in order for that to advance, he had to wait on God's timing. But waiting on God's timing does not mean going home and twiddling your thumbs and waiting for some great door of greatness to open. He went back home and did what he knows he was supposed to do. Look, when God gives you a vision, a dream, or a plan of what he wants to do in and through your life, the best thing you can do in that moment is to go back and double down on what you know you're supposed to be doing, serving him. Serving others, fulfilling God's calling in your life in the now. And as we fulfill the now in our life and serve God now, the steps of how he'll accomplish what he's given us the vision and dream to do, that'll take care of itself. You see, the Christian life is more about being than it is about doing. You take care of the being, take care of what you're supposed to be in the Lord and what you're supposed to do for the Lord. That'll take care of itself. We need to humbly wait on the Lord. Proverbs 16 says, Commit thy works unto the Lord, and thy thoughts shall be established. Commit thy works. Commit your now to the Lord. I often tell young people, seeking, how do I, how do I figure out God's call in my life, where I'm supposed to serve? Well, you commit your works. You commit to doing what you're supposed to be doing right now. And the thoughts of what God has planned for you, that'll take care of itself. When we're filled with the Spirit, as Saul was, guided by his word, as Saul was, he becomes a new man. In chapter 10 and chapter 9, it says he, was, he would be transformed by the filling of the Spirit and by the obedience to the Word of God. And yet, during this transformation, this complete spirit filling and this calling, he remains faithful to his duty where he was at home. And in this humility, God will raise him up. We need more than ever today biblically minded Christians. You see, just as Saul in that day, we, we have an advantage that they didn't have in the Old Testament. We have every individual Christian, when you put your faith in trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are born again. You are a new creation. And you have the filling of the Holy Spirit. John put it this way, you have the unction of the Spirit. In fact, he went so far as to say, you don't even have need of me. Okay? I thank God that he calls up men to pastor. And I thank God that he gifts men with the ability to teach I thank God for Pastor Henry and his desire to pastor to this church and feed the church the Word of God. But the Apostle John said, you don't have need of me. You have the unction of the Holy Spirit. Look, if there is a man that is your connection to God, you're doing it wrong. We have direct connection to the Lord through the Holy Spirit. You are born again. The Bible says you have the mind of Christ. We have been given a new way of thinking. The world doesn't get it. The Bible doesn't make sense to those who are lost. 
It's spiritually discerned. It can only be understood as we are growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit must reorganize, not just, not just rewire the way we think, but give us a whole new way of thinking. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2.16 that we have the mind of Christ. What is the mind of Christ? The mind of Christ that we have been given by the rebirth when you're born again and you are given the Spirit. It is the understanding of the nature of and the will of God. The world can't comprehend and understand the nature of Jesus, the true nature. In fact, when Jesus asked the disciples, who do men say that I am? There's a lot of opinions about who Jesus was. And Peter responded, here's who we believe you are. You are the Son of God, the Son of the living God. You are the Christ, the Messiah. And what did Jesus say? Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood has not revealed this unto thee but my Father which is in heaven. In 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter says, I write this second epistle unto you by way I which I would stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance that ye might be mindful of the things which were written. See, we have an advantage. Every individual Christian has an advantage that Israel didn't have in that day. We have the Word of God and the indwelling Spirit. We have no excuse to fulfill the calling of God in our life to the fullest. We have the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ is understanding the nature and the will of God. In Colossians 1.9, Paul said, My prayer is that you would be filled with the knowledge of His will. When we understand the nature of God and when we understand the will of God, which is revealed in the Word of God, which is discerned by the Spirit of God, there's no stopping what we can do for God in His work that He has called us to. Peter said, I want to stir up your pure minds. Our pure minds are stirred when we remember the Word of God. When you were born again, the Bible says the Word of God was engrafted, it was planted in you. Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the living Word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. The Word of God is planted in you by the Spirit of God. In order to activate, we could say, that pure mind that God has given us, that mind of Christ, we simply need to come back to the Word of God. Come back to obedience to the Word of God. Doing what we know we are to be doing in our life through humility that word in second peter pure mind that pure that word pure it's a different word than when you find about meaning holiness or, or washing or making clean it actually has the idea of that which is judged by sunlight in other words it it means that when when it is exposed to light it is proven to be genuine the Bible says in Hebrews that the Word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. It is able to cut and divide and discern between the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And here's what he says in verse 13 of chapter 4. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are open and naked under the eyes of him with whom we have to do. The Word of God has, a, has a, the ability, as the living Word of God, to expose error in our life and to enable growth. And when you are born again, you've been given the mind of Christ. And sometimes we can get away from living the way we ought to be living. I was listening to a message this morning and the preacher was reminding us. It was really good. He said, look, I would fall out of fellowship with my father once in a while, my earthly father, but it didn't mean in order to get right with my earthly father, I had to be born literally again. I just had to reconcile and confess and come back to him. And while you cannot lose your salvation when you are born again by the incorruptible eternal word of God, while you cannot lose your fellowship with God as a believer in Christ, you can fall out of where God desires you to be in fulfilling his will for your life in the now. We need to reactivate. We need to expose that pure mind that can be neglected by the cares of this life. We need to expose that pure mind planted within us that God has given us to the Word of God. And the Word of God will do its work by the Spirit of God exposing the error in our life and enabling growth. Peter encourages us in chapter 3 of his second epistle, but grow in the grace and knowledge 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to be believers that are growing in grace and knowledge. The life of Saul is a tragic warning to always be moving forward to what happens to a life when you stop growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 4, 7. Paul tells us that we have this treasure, the knowledge of Christ, the grace of God, and the power to live the Christian life, the mind of Christ. We have this treasure in earthen vessels, literally in jars of clay, in these earthen temporary vessels. God has entrusted to us His power and the riches of His grace and salvation and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And Saul reminds us that as earthen vessels, we must maintain essential biblical characteristics in order to maintain stability and spiritual growth, which is what really is maturity. If we are not actively maturing in the Lord, there's no in-between for the Christian life, okay? You're either advancing in your growth for the Lord or you are digressing and going backward. There's, there's not an option to just kind of hang out in the middle ground. You're either moving forward in your growth or backsliding. We are to be growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. The process of growth or the process of maturity for the Christian in growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord which both through the Word of God exposes error and enables growth, it requires three essential elements. These three essential elements were present in the life of Saul in his early days, but slowly he began to neglect this process of growth. Number one, there has to be an internalization of the Word. We need to consume the Word. There needs to be an internalization. Paul said, uh, Peter said, I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. Remembrance of what? Of the Word of God. We need to be internalizing the Word of God. James said, receive with meekness the engrafted Word, the implanted Word, which is able to save your soul. Uh, Joshua 1.8, Moses tells Joshua, this book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do all that is written therein. Then shalt thou make thy way prosperous. Then shalt thou find good success. We need to be ever consuming the Word of God. We need to be always internalizing, taking in the Word of God through the preaching of the Word of God. That's why, again, I will emphasize it till the day I die. Church is so essential that we come to hear the Word of God being preached by the man that God has chosen to preach it, and that we take what we learn and internalize it, that we read the Word of God on a daily basis, that we read the God, Word of God regularly. Are we consuming the Word of God? We need to internalize the Word of God. Peter also says, I want to stir up your pure minds. Secondly, an essential element to Christian growth is the personalization of the Word. The personalization of the word. We need to be contemplating the word or meditating on the word. We need to be stirring up our pure minds. You see, the word of God is not just some generic universal principles that we can choose to live by or not. The word of God is quick and powerful. That word quick means it is alive. It is a living word. That means it is relevant to your need and to your heart. The Word of God is personalized to you. Jesus came to save sinners, you and I. The Word of God will transform our lives. The Bible says to be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of our minds. When we personalize the gospel, what does that mean? Jesus said, abide in me and my words abide in you. You shall ask what you will and it shall be done of my Father which is in heaven. In other words, when you abide in the Word of God, you learn to discern the will of God for your personal life. Personalizing the Word of God, as we meditate on the Word of God, as we contemplate the Word of God, we begin to develop the grace and wisdom which produces discernment, which is the grace of God to make practical application of universal 
principles and the promises of scriptures to our individual lives. You say, well, the Bible doesn't talk about this area. Sure it does. You just consume the word of God. You contemplate it. You meditate on it. And when an issue comes up that may be not spelled out specifically in scriptures, the spirit of God will take the word of God and he will allow you through discernment to make application to the word in your personal life. We need to personalize the word of God by meditating on it, consuming it. And then thirdly, third aspect or element necessary for Christian growth is the externalization of the gospel. In other words, we need to consecrate ourselves to living the word. Peter said, I want to stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. The Bible says in Romans 12 that we are to present our bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And as we are renewed in our mind, we are transformed in our living. And as we are transformed in our living, we prove what is that perfect and acceptable will of God. How do I know the will of God? Well, you consume the Word of God. You contemplate the Word of God. You internalize the Word of God. And the Spirit of God will personalize the Word of God to your life so that you are living the truth the way God designed and desires you to. And as you live the truth and present and consecrate yourself to obedience to the Word of God, then we come to the place where we are proving the will of God and what God desires us to do. If at any moment in our life we fail to cultivate these aspects of Christian growth, we'll begin to backslide. We cannot at any time neglect this process, consuming the Word of God, contemplating the Word of God. What are you consuming? What is it that consumes your mind and your thinking and your affections and your heart? In Senegal, there's a lot of goats and there's a lot of sheep, okay? You come and you'll see, there's two things you'll see as soon as you come into Senegal. Goats everywhere, they just roam all over the place, and garbage. And then you'll see sheep. Now, the difference between goat and sheep, okay, is goats will eat whatever. And they help clean up the trash. They will eat anything. Sheep, on the other hand, they're more picky. It takes a little more to feed them. Now, in Senegal, they try to coast their sheep to eat cardboard that they'll soak in water for a while and try to make it palatable, but sheep don't like it too much, but they try anyway, so I don't know. Anyway, the point is, sheep are a little more picky in what they consume. And you know what? Sheep are way more expensive than goats. Why? Not because there's more value intrinsically to a sheep than a goat. They're animals. The value of the sheep is in what it consumes. It consumes a more pure nurture. Whereas the goats, they'll eat anything. What are you consuming? You see, the value of our life isn't necessarily intrinsically what we are. We're sinners. What brings value to our life is what we consume. What brings value to our life is, is the Word of God and the Spirit of God who saved us. What brings value to our life is the love of God who loved us and saved us. We need to be contemplating and consecrating ourselves. And at any moment that we neglect this process, we risk a downfall into backsliding. Now, this is missions 101. This is a missions message, whether you realize it or not. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 34, Awake to righteousness, for some have not the knowledge of the gospel. I speak this to your shame. If we're going to fulfill biblical mission, then we must be biblically minded Christians who are living the Christian life, submitted to the Spirit and obedience to the Word. Look, you can't conjure up by sheer willpower the Christian life. You can imitate it, but you cannot sustain it. Sooner or later, the hens come home to roost. You can imitate the Christian life on the outward, but you cannot sustain the Christian life, by the grace of God. We need the Lord. We need His Word. We need His Spirit. The Bible says in Zechariah 4, 6, not by might nor by power. It is by my Spirit, saith the Lord. Saul in his early life would sustain growth and victory as long as he relied on the Lord. And he has some amazing victory in his early days. Psalm 18, 28 says, 
that thou, O Lord, will light my candle. By thee I have run through a troop. His way is perfect. The word of the Lord is tried. It is God that girds me with strength and makes my way perfect. God has a plan for this church. God has a mission to accomplish, but it cannot be accomplished in our own wisdom, our own logic, our own might, our own power, our own conniving. We must rely on the Spirit of God, on the Word of God. And Saul in his early days, this is where he was. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. See, the problem is, though we have access to all this grace and knowledge in Christ, we're still just human beings who need to, on a regular basis, renew our commitment to God, renew the mission that God's called us to by continuing to grow in the grace and knowledge we need to learn to maintain humility rather than pride. One of the great downfalls of Saul was his pride. We need to learn to abide in peace and joy and the fear of the Lord rather than fear and anxiety of what's out there in the world. The knowledge and grace of God will cultivate within us the fruits of the Spirit. And as we walk in the Spirit, we won't accomplish the lust and desires of the flesh. How do you walk in the Spirit? Well, I'm glad you asked. I mean, we just went through it, okay? <laughs> Take the Word of God in. Live the Word of God. Commit yourself to it. Never is the reality of our faith or our character put more to the test than when we face conflict. When conflict arises, the reality of what you say you believe comes to the surface and your character will be exposed. And Saul faces his first conflict, and he's given an opportunity to prove his calling. Chapter 11, Ammonites come up, they encamp against Jabesh-Gilead. The men of Jabesh, verse 1 of chapter 11, said to Nahash, Make a covenant with us, and we will serve thee. And Nahash the Ammonite answered them, On this condition will I make a covenant with you. And so Tristan, I told him I was going to have him come up, and we're going to see if he will do what the men of Jabesh did. All right, so Tristan, I'm the enemy, okay? Here's a conflict about to come up. I encamp against your home. You're the leader of the town. All right, here's the ultimatum. You come out, you're scared half to death. You don't want to die, all right? You don't want to be killed. And so you come out to the leader, this big scary Ammonite, and you say, make a covenant with us, we'll serve you. And so... Would you rather, Tristan, die, okay, if you were in their situation, would you rather die a horrible, gruesome death or become a slave of this enemy? Become a slave. Become a slave, okay, become a slave, all right, all right. But here's the condition. I'll keep you alive, but I got to gouge out your right eye. Now what do you want to do? You don't know. That'd be a tough one. I think I'd answer the same thing. He said, I don't know either. I would hope I would rather fight, okay? But here's the response. Give us seven days, okay? Let's think about it. Seven days, and uh, we'll get back with you. So they go home, and they send out messengers. Is there anybody that would come out and help us? Okay. Word gets to Saul. Here's the first major conflict that Saul is going to be able to prove his faith. And when conflict arises in our life, we are forced to not only display our character, but conflict is where our trust in God is tested. And conflict is where the grace of God is measured. Now, I want you to understand this. When we talk about the grace of God measured, the grace that God measures, I'm not talking about the, the size of our faith or grace. A lot of times you say, if I just had bigger faith, I could do more. Jesus said, if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, because it's God's power we're relying on, you just need a little bit to access that, and God will open up the floodgates and do what he said he would do. God has obligated himself to fulfill his word. It doesn't matter what size faith you have, okay? Just put it in what God has promised to fulfill, and God will fulfill it in your life. The grace, though, of how we get to access God's power and see God 
do great things in our life. That is a grace that is measured according to our response to the conflicts that arise in our life. Let me give you an example. The Apostle Peter, as he's a disciple of Jesus, they're in the boat. The storm comes up. Jesus is walking on the water. They thought they saw a ghost. They thought they saw a spirit. They had no idea what was going on. They didn't know if it was a ghost or a spirit, which tells me one of two things. Either seeing ghosts or seeing spirits walk on water was a common occurrence on the Sea of Galilee during storms, which I don't think is the case. Or when we're living in fear, it causes us to become irrational about what's happening in our life and the conflicts in our life. Well, as they call out in fear, Jesus responds and says, it is I. Now, they're still not 100% sure, but they can believe that Jesus is able to walk on water. They can have faith in that. I mean, Jesus can do anything. So their, their fears are calmed a little bit. I can believe Jesus can walk on water. But what measure of grace do you want extended to you to accomplish what God's called you to do? See, Peter wasn't satisfied with that. He said, if it is you, Lord, let me come to you. And Jesus extended the measure of grace according to the response, and Peter was able to walk on water to the Lord. Of course, he wobbled a little bit. He sank because of his lack of faith. But when conflict arises... God has an immeasurable amount of grace that he desires to pour out upon us that we might fulfill his will and see Jesus Christ glorified. That measure that will be poured out to you is going to be according to your response. Are you going to trust God in this? And so this conflict comes up. God delights to use the improbable that he might accomplish the impossible. And here we see in verse 6 and 7 that Saul, who is humbly waiting on the Lord, serving at home, what he knows he's supposed to be doing, fulfilling his duties at home, God calls him and he begins, in verse 6, he uses his own resources. Imagine he's out there plowing, doing what he's supposed to do, and immediately upon hearing this conflict, takes all of his oxen, sacks, cuts them all up into pieces, and sends them all throughout Israel, and says, this will be done unto the Israelite who does not gather to come and protect our own people. And the Bible says in verse 7, And he took a yoke of oxen, he hewed them in pieces toward the latter part of the verse, and the fear of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out with one consent, filled with the Spirit. Saul arises to the occasion to fulfill his calling. And in humility and in God's timing, the people rally around him. And there's great unity in the foundation of this dynasty, this kingdom. Because of his humility, the foundation of unity is God's will and his word. When we as individuals determine that I'm going to do what God desires me to do, I'm going to fulfill God's will, I'm going to be consumed with his word, and when that flows from humility in the church body and in the leadership, when there is humility and confidence in God's sovereign power and God's grace, there's no stopping what can be accomplished for the work of the Lord. They came out with one consent. There was unity flowing from a collective and personal fear of God. A unified church does not maintain its unity by the manipulative tactics of a charismatic leader or by the fear of man, by by a domineering or overbearing leader, but unity in the church is maintained by humble fear of the Lord. We need the fear of the Lord in our lives. Psalm Chapter 2, verse 11. The Bible says, serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. That song that was sung, he came to me. He gave himself. If we would get back to an understanding of the nature of our holy God and his righteousness, Just the thought that a holy God would extend his grace to me and not only save me, but enjoin me into his presence and give me salvation in Christ and not only save me by his blood, but raise me up to a new life that God would extend a high and holy God who in my own state and in my sinful nature could not stand before him in an instant. If we get back to understanding the nature of how high and holy our God is and that he desires to delight in us and bring us to himself and that he paved the way 
way through Jesus Christ to bring us to himself. If we understand the greatness of our God, humility would be the only response in complete service and submission and surrender to his will in obedience to his command. And when we understand that a high and holy God laid aside that royal majesty and glory and took upon him the form of a servant and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, when we understand Jesus could have came into this world and by right of who he is as God, wiped every single one of us out. When we understand that he took upon him the lowly form of a servant, we should understand in the church, it is not about vying for a position or who can be the top dog. We ought to be fighting each other over the lowest position. Who gets the serve one another and when there is that sense of the holiness and a biblical view of the greatness of our God there will be unity in the fear of the Lord we need to return to this biblical fear of God biblical fear of God is based on my comprehension of God's nature and my absolute inability to stand before him in and of myself, and when I recognize with joy that he loves me and he gave himself for me and he saved me by his blood and he sustains me by his grace, we'll unite. And God, there's no stopping to the victories we will see when God blesses the individuals and churches that decide to band together to fulfill the mission of God. Unity will make will only be as great as your fear of the Lord. Victory in unity and the fulfillment of mission of what God's called us to do is essential to our obedience to the command Jesus gave us, that we love one another, that we be unified, unified around the Word of God, unified in submission to the Holy Spirit, unified in in the way in which God has called us to live our lives. Are you serving the Lord in fear? In Psalm 2, he says, rejoice with trembling. Whenever I prepare for a message and I, I get kind of, I get excited as I'm reading and preaching it to myself and, and then as I, I'm going through and just reading the power of the word of God and the power of these truths, I'll start trembling sometimes, I'll be honest with you, because this is God's truth. That this earthen vessel, frail, sinful human being, gets the privilege to stand up and, and, and announce and preach. That there's nothing valuable within me that I have to offer to anybody. But when I consume the word of God, I have the greatest and richest gift and message that I could offer to anybody. It has to be the word of God. Are you serving in fear? Are you serving in joy, in humility? When this joy which is a product of the fear of the Lord, is coupled with this godly fear and humility, then it produces, as we close, it produces what might be the most important characteristic to fulfill mission. That is compassion. You see, when we're not living in fear of the Lord, when we're not serving with joy, and when we're not practicing humility, compassion is replaced with hardness and my way of doing things and just cold, not legalism, but just cold Christian living. We need compassion. We need to be a church of compassion. And that's the outflow of serving the Lord with joy and the fear of the Lord and unity, surrendered to the Lord. Look at verse 12. After this great victory, the Ammonites are scattered. There's not even left two of them together. They're scattered. And the Bible says that they came. People said unto Samuel, Who is he that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. Those sons of Belial, at the very beginning, they said, Who is this Saul that he should reign over us? Hey, he just brought great victory into Israel. Let's kill them all. Okay. And look at Saul's compassionate response. He said, There shall not a man be put to death this day, for today the Lord hath wrought salvation in Israel. When you start to see God bring victory in our conflicts because we are depending on him in the fear of the Lord, serving with joy and in unity of the Spirit, through humility, compassion is produced because we realize 
I don't deserve any of this. I am a debtor to take this message that God has entrusted me and stewarded it to me and take it to those who've never heard. Compassion. If we'll do this, we will renew the mission. At the climax of all of this, verse 14, then Samuel said to the people, come, let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. In verse 15, the people rejoice greatly. If we're going to have renewal, revival, you could call it, there are certain principles we must be putting into practice. Principles of humility, fear of the Lord, the joy of the Lord, submission to the Spirit, surrender to the will of God, consuming the Word of God. These things must be into place. And when we come together unified under submission and surrender to the will of God, the Word of God, the Spirit of God, in humility, serving with joy, then the door opens for the renewal of what God originally called us to do. Jesus told the church in Revelation, I think it was Ephesus, right? You've walked away from your first love. Repent, therefore, do the first works. And if we're going to have a renewal, to fulfilling God's mission on earth, then may we put these things into practice. Evaluate our individual lives. Turn to the Lord. Allow God to expose the error in our thinking and living and then depend on God. And when the conflicts arise and the mission is put before us, we can march forward as a unified church fulfilling God's work, renewing the kingdom as we fulfill His mission for us. Father, we thank You for Your Word. And Lord, we are warned by the life of Saul how quickly we can turn away from the way of God when we are not following you in complete surrender. And so Lord, today, we desire to renew your mission. We desire to renew ourselves in consecration to your word, submission to the Spirit, and obedience to Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. With your head bows and eyes closed, would you stand? As the pianist begins, if you have a decision to make, come forward. Renew your life for the Lord today. Commit to God, to following and serving Him with all your heart. We'll take a few minutes to pray. We won't delay. Are you living and practicing humility, the fear of the Lord? Are you consecrated to the Lord? faithful to his word, surrendered to his will. May God help us to put these essential elements into practice that we might be a unified church, that we might fulfill the mission God's called us. Take a minute to pray. Pastor Aaron will come.